Now take your Bibles and turn to the prophecy of Zechariah. Tonight we'll pick up where we left off in chapter 6. And our reading and the text for tonight's sermon will be verses 9 through 15. Zechariah chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be, be, shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helem, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. And that is the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Let's ask him now to bless it to us. Father, as we come now to your word, uh, we pray your blessing upon the ministry of it, and we pray most of all that Christ will be lifted up before the eyes of our faith, and that you will make this word effectual for our salvation. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. I'm pretty sure all of you know that Hillary and I have a son whose name is Branch. I don't know if that strikes you as a rather odd name. He's named after uh, one of my uncles. And uh, I would say, no pun intended, but I know you wouldn't believe me if I say it. So I'll just say that there are many, there are several branches in my family tree. Okay, uh, my, uh, my great-grandfather's name was William Branch Walton, and uh, both my uncle and our son, Branch is their middle name, but they've always gone by that uh, name, and it's not a common name, I admit that, uh, uh, but then, you know, uncommon names, or you come across them, and names that come from nature, or derived from nature. I had a friend in, um, in Asheville who had a child named Rain. And I had a buddy in, uh, who, who attended a Bible study I led in, during our time in Germany. He had a son named River. Um, but this name, Branch, that we find in Scripture here is not another nature name in that sense. It's an Old Testament name given to the Messiah. It is a clearly messianic name and title. You see it several places in the prophets, 
you see it a couple of times in Isaiah, and you know there's that familiar passage about a, about a stem coming up from the stump of Jesse and a, and a branch coming forth from his root. And that's clearly a reference to Christ, the Messiah. Then you've also got a couple of very strong passages in Jeremiah. For instance, Jeremiah 23.5. Jeremiah 23.5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And that's capitalized in your English Bibles. And that, on the one hand, yes, is an editorial decision. It's a translator's decision. But it's based on the clear conviction that this is um, not just a, a... an ordinary noun, this is a proper noun. It seemed to be a title, it seemed to be a name. I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. You find very similar words again in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 5. And then, uh, as we saw a couple of months ago in Zechariah chapter 3, we see another reference to this name, to this title. Zechariah 3, verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Now, notice too in our text tonight, in, uh, in verse 12, where the text says, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. And more than one commentator found sort of an echo of that in the words of Pontius Pilate. Because you've got this this ritual taking place, this symbolic action with a crown being placed on the head of the high priest and the prophet, God's prophet, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. And then when Jesus Christ was on trial and after he'd been mocked and beaten and spit upon by Roman soldiers and they put on him a crown of thorns, not a crown of silver, not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. And then he was brought out and presented to the crowds and Pontius Pilate said, behold the man. But at this point in Zechariah, Remember, there were eight night visions, which again we assume to have come in succession on the same night. Now those visions are ended. And as a kind of a climactic act at the conclusion of these visions given to Zechariah, the Lord commands that this symbolic act be carried out. Carried out as a prophetic sign. God commanded the prophet to make a crown and to put it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. And this is obviously a symbolic act. In other words, he wasn't crowning Joshua to be king of Israel. And Joshua um, would not have interpreted that way. For one thing, in the Old Testament economy, in in uh, in the religious life of the people of Israel, priests didn't wear crowns. Priests wore caps. And the high priest wore a turban with a, uh, with a, a sign on it, but uh, they didn't wear crowns. Kings wore crowns, but not priests. And then even the crown in this, uh, in this passage didn't remain on Joshua. This was an act, a symbolic act that was carried out um, 
And the symbolism was Zechariah was to place the crown on the head of the high priest, but the, the crown didn't stay there. He didn't get to continue to wear it. The text tells us that that crown was then taken and it was to be placed in the temple of the Lord. And it was to stay there as a sign and as a reminder. And we'll, we'll deal with that in just a moment. But what all this teaches us is that the branch, in other words, the Lord's anointed, will be a kingly priest who obtains peace for his people. The branch, the Lord's anointed, will be a kingly priest who obtains peace for his people. And that phrase, kingly priest, is significant because kings and priests weren't the same people. They couldn't be, really. In fact, in Israel, they came from entirely different tribes. But there will be one, a kingly priest, and he would, he would be his people's peace. So first, we're going to see that the, the branch, this one spoken of in the text, the branch will build the temple. Secondly, the branch will rule as a royal priest. And then finally, the branch will be our peace. So first of all, the branch will build the temple. At this point, when this prophecy came, uh, when Zechariah saw all these visions, the people, the people who had returned from exile, were in the process of trying to rebuild the temple of the Lord. They were actually physically about that process, that construction. And it was hard work. Building a structure of that size, building a structure of that importance, was difficult. It was challenging. It was hard work for them. And the people were discouraged. They were discouraged because the work is hard. And they were discouraged because they were facing opposition from people in the land. And yet, the Lord had commanded that they do this. He'd commanded that they do it, and He'd encouraged them in the work. And He speaks of the man whose name is the branch. And while the people were busy about this work of building, physically building, a temple for the Lord. The Lord says to them, the man whose name is the branch shall build the temple. And you notice he says it twice. And that's, I'm sure, for emphasis. He says it in verse 12 and then repeats it again right away in verse 13. Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord. Don't know whether this maybe created some tension in the minds of the people because they were trying to build the temple of the Lord. But now the prophet is saying the one who's really going to build the temple of the Lord is the branch. God had promised his blessing upon the work of the people. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, uh, who was the governor, he was a descendant of David, and Joshua and these two, Joshua and Zerubbabel, were overseeing the work and God had promised to bless it. He had commanded the people to resume the work and he'd said that God, his own hand would be upon their labors and their efforts. And in the prophet Haggai, God had promised that this temple would be more glorious than the first. You know, Zechariah is just before Zephaniah, uh, excuse me, Haggai is just before 
Zechariah. We could turn back there. If you can look at Haggai chapter 2, verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So he's saying that there's a temple to come and it's going to be even more glorious than the former one. Now it's rather doubtful, I would think, that the temple built under the auspices of Zerubbabel and Joshua was greater than Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple would have been really something to behold. And for these, this ragtag band of returned exiles to build something comparable to what was built in the, in the days and through the wealth of Solomon is, is just it's, it's unthinkable. So, but what's going to happen later on, centuries later, is that Herod, using his authority as king, we might say, and wielding and um, drawing upon the wealth of the, of the Roman Empire, he would refurbish and, and beautify and build up not only the temple but the whole temple complex to the point that you know, Herod's temple may well have been more glorious than Solomon's. But that too was eventually destroyed and of course even to this day there's no, there's no temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So I think, I think Haggai and Zechariah were prophesying about something else. When they said temple to come would be more glorious than the first, they weren't talking about a physical temple. Talking about something different. The temple that the branch builds would endure and it would be far more glorious I think this is what Jesus was talking about. When people were challenging him, they asked him for a sign. And he said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. You know, and they didn't understand what he was saying because they said, what are you talking about? It's taken years to build this temple and you're going to rebuild it in three days? Of course, we know from the text itself, he was speaking about his body. He wasn't speaking about a building. He was foretelling his death and his resurrection. And Jesus, who is the branch, he also spoke of another building. He said to his disciples after Peter had correctly identified him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, he said, I will build my church. And of course, what is the church but the body of Christ? And so, commentator writing in the Tyndale Old Testament commentary said, uh, the temple that this branch ultimately builds is the true place of worship, the sacred tent of the heavenly realm built upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as the Messiah. So the temples that were built in Jerusalem, both the one built by Solomon and the one built by Zerubbabel, were really mere symbols that pale in comparison 
with the glory of the house that the Lord Jesus Christ is building. The blood of bulls and goats and all those sacrifices offered in those temples could never take away sin. But the blood of Jesus can take away sin. And those temples were symbols, but they represented a greater reality, the reality of Christ and of His body and of His church. The branch will build the temple. But we see too in this text Uh, the branch will rule as a royal priest. Again, royal priest, that that should be uh, an oxymoron. Well, not not an oxymoron, but it should be an incongruity. How can you have a royal priest? You've got these people in the text, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah. They'd recently returned from the exile. They're not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture other than right here in Zechariah 6. So we don't know anything about them. They evidently were well known by people in their day. But uh, it seems maybe they had been entrusted to bring an offering. They had recently come from Babylon. And maybe the exiles still in Babylon, still in uh, faraway lands, had made a contribution of silver and of gold toward the building of the temple. And these men were tasked and entrusted to carry it to Jerusalem. And... God instructs his prophet, take some of that gold and silver and make a crown with it. A crown of silver and gold. And then he does this symbolic ritual action. He places it on the head of Joshua. He places that crown on Joshua's head and then he says, thus says the Lord, behold, the man whose name is the branch. And the man whose name is the branch, who was going to come in the future, was represented by Joshua, who was the high priest in those days. And you have Joshua wearing a crown, which is what a king would wear. And as the prophecy of the Lord goes on to describe and speak of this one, this branch, it speaks in terms of kingly attributes. It says that he will bear royal honor in verse 13. And he's going to sit and he's going to rule on a throne. So he's got those royal attributes. Clearly he will be a king, but he'll also be a priest and he has priestly attributes described here as well. Now the way the ESV puts it is uh, there shall be a priest on his throne. And the the, the grammar and the the syntax of of the, the Hebrew here is somewhat difficult so either you've got two people or you have one person in two roles and I think actually that second possibility is the better way of looking at it and that's why many of the other uh, um, uh, faithful English versions English translations say he shall be a priest on his throne it might be a better way of rendering it And so what this passage is doing is announcing the coming of a priestly king. Or we could say a a kingly priest. Either way, the point is the same. Now in Israel, if you're going to have a king, what tribe did he have to be of? He had to be of the tribe of Judah. At least ever since David. He had to be of the tribe of Judah and he had to be a descendant of David, a son of David. And if a person didn't meet those qualifications, could not be king of Israel. 
But then you've got this priestly aspect of it. And all the priests came from the tribe of Levi. You didn't just sign up to be a priest if you're from the tribe of Benjamin or a tribe of Ephraim. You were disqualified. You had to be a Levite. And if you wanted to be the high priest, you had to be directly descended from Aaron. And so the idea of a priestly king or a kingly priest might have been perplexing to some of these returned exiles. How can one person be both a priest and a king? It would have perplexed them unless they had been reflecting on Psalm 110. Because it's in Psalm 110 that we read of a person who has both offices. And it goes back to Melchizedek. You know, these, these returned to exiles, if they'd been faithful in attending synagogue and listening to the scriptures, they would have known what the book of Genesis says, the first book of Moses, and how it speaks of this mysterious person called Melchizedek or Melchizedek who came to Abraham after Abraham had delivered Lot and those people from from the kings, come back from battle and delivered his nephew and saved him. And this man who is the priest of God Most High, but he's also king of Salem. So the Jews would know that story. And so the idea of a priest-king would not be completely foreign to them. And again, if they were thinking in terms of Psalm 110, which points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ and in his mediatorial offices, how he would execute the offices of both a priest and a king. Turn with me to Psalm 110. Because this is the one, this is the passage that if people had been contemplating it, then the thought of a priest-king wouldn't necessarily be that strange after all. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So there you have a king. Verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So there you have a priest. The same person, a king ruling and a priest. So the Messiah, the branch, was to be both a king and a priest. And Christ is the fulfillment of that. In fact, Christ is the fulfillment of what the offices of king and priest uh, represent. He's the perfect priest. He's the ultimate and perfect and great king. And so the branch will rule as a royal priest. But then finally, the branch will be our peace. Remember back in verse 13, at the end of the verse, speaking of these two offices, it says, the counsel of peace shall be between them both. Speaking there of both offices. 
the office of king. And what was the king's responsibility? It was the king's job to administer justice in the land. What was the priest's job? The priest's job was to make atonement for the sins of the people. And in the branch, there's going to be a council of peace between the king and the priest. It reminds me of Psalm 85, verse 10, where it says, righteousness and peace kiss each other. See, righteousness demands justice. But peace would seem to argue with that. No, don't do justice, make peace, because we're talking about sinners. But in Christ, God can make peace with sinners, and there's perfect harmony between His justice and His grace. This council of peace, this, this unity, brings together the branch who's going to build the temple, brings together the concept of the building of the temple, and the idea of the priest-king. It unites them. And I think one of the best expressions of that is found in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 2. So turn there with me, would, would you please? Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 11. Now here at this point, Paul is writing to Christians in Ephesus who were Gentiles. And he says in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and being without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. See, Christ is our peace. He breaks down the dividing wall. And Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, which was predominantly Gentile, but no doubt had Christian Jews in it as well, he's saying there's not any longer two groups you're one now because of what Christ has done. He is our peace. He breaks down the dividing walls. And as you go on through that same passage in Ephesians, picking up again at verse 15, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He removes the causes of separation. He kills the hostility because we needed peace. Those Christians in Ephesus needed peace. Not just peace between Jew and Gentile, but much more importantly, they needed peace with God because they were sinners. And God hates sin. God has to judge sin. Christ, through His saving work in our behalf, He killed the hostility by taking the death blow 
himself in his own body. And so, verse 17 of Ephesians 2 speaks of peace to Gentiles and peace to Jews. Look at it with me. He, Christ, he came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's Gentiles, and to you who were near, that's Jews. Peace to Gentiles, peace to Jews. Peace among them and peace with God. That's why this one who is to be called the Prince of Peace is called the Prince of Peace because he can make peace between people who were once at enmity with one another. And again, far more extraordinarily, he can make peace between a holy God and a people who have a sin problem. This sheds some light, I think, too, on, on the conclusion of our text from tonight. Look at verse 15 of Zechariah 6 with me one more time. Zechariah 6, verse 15. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. That expression far off, you know, in the immediate context, in the short term, very well refers to uh, exiles who are returning. They were far off in the land of Babylon. They're far off in various lands of captivity, but they're coming back. And they're going to assist. They're going to contribute with their means. They're going to contribute with their energy and with their strength to the building of this temple. Yes, so they, they come and they help to build. But the long-term gospel fulfillment of that is the nations coming to Christ in which those who are far off are the Gentiles. The nations. The peoples of the earth. Every tribe and tongue and language. So again, in that passage from Ephesians, go there with me one more time. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the temple that the branch is building. The Lord Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the branch is building up a temple. He's building up a house. But He's not using timber. He's not using stone. He's not using silver and gold, but He's using precious souls who have been united to Him. You, yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, not blood sacrifices, not animals, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
And through His Spirit, Christ is making us like unto Himself. He's conforming us more and more to His own image. He's called us. And why did He call us? He called to make us a royal priesthood. As He makes us more like Himself. And as eventually we are with Him in glory. Just as He is a priestly king, we too will be kings and priests to our God. A people for His own possession. A holy nation. And the price that Jesus Christ paid in order to make all of this happen was no less than the shedding of His own precious blood. And that's what we come to remember in the Lord's Supper. This one, this priest, who had to offer a sacrifice for the sins of His people, offered Himself. And that's what we remember when we come to the table. Remember, the, the assurance of pardon that was read this morning in our worship service. By His wounds, you are healed. Christ was forsaken by the Father so that you could be accepted by the Father. He made